Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. We're looking at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Allow me to read this passage. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Today we're looking at the church in Philadelphia and uh, Jesus' letter to them. And here we kind of find an exception to the rule. Pretty much all the letters to the churches start off with a compliment of what they're doing right. And then there's kind of a condemnation, you know, a warning against what they're not doing right. And then a, a warning of what will happen if they continue on that road of not doing right. And then what will happen if they repent and come back to the right relationship. In this passage, you really don't see a condemnation. There is a little bit of a warning, but we'll get to that in just a moment. So we look and we see that even though no church is perfect, this church in Philadelphia uh, is not perfect. Uh, but obviously they were tempted to, uh, by the, those who are persecuting them. Uh, Jesus gives them a word of encouragement to continue to overcome. I think that's his message to all of us as Christians is keep on keeping on. Do what is right and God will uh, give you the answers of your heart. All right, well, Jesus has given the encouragement to keep on uh, overcoming. And that's really the message he gives all of us. If you remember, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I've ran the race. I've, I've finished the race. And that's really what God wants us to do is keep on keeping on. Do not give up. Be an overcomer. Now, we look at the church in Philadelphia, and uh, we know that there's a meaning behind the name Philadelphia. It really means love of the brethren. And we know that our own Philadelphia in Pennsylvania is called the City of Brotherly Love. I'm not sure if it still is right now, but uh, that's really the, the nickname for that city. So, like the other cities so far, uh, it is found on a strategic route. Uh, if you remember, uh, basically everything started off in Ephesus and just kind of made a, start, a loop that goes around. And so none of these churches are really that far away from each other. But if you follow that circular path, 
then Philadelphia would be that next major uh, city on that route. Well, again, it was on a strategic route. It was on a major east-west corridor that led from Athens to the east. And so a lot of, a lot of traffic went through there. And because of that, there are two nicknames given to it, the gateway to the east, kind of sounds like St. Louis, doesn't it? Uh, or Little Athens, basically because there are a lot of temples that have been built there for the Roman gods. So because of its location, it would find a lot of persecution because these church people had refused to worship the pagan gods. And at the same time, it was also a place of tremendous opportunities. Not only were they to minister to the people who lived there, but there's a constant flow of people coming in and out. So every time you know, if somebody traveled through, they had an opportunity to share the gospel. And hopefully, prayerfully, they would accept that gospel and they would spread it wherever they were going. So there was a great opportunity there. Uh, so like Sardis, if you remember, we talked about it a little bit last week. There's a major earthquake that happened like 17 AD or something like that. And so it had a lot of damage and it had to come back from that. Uh, Verse 7, Jesus identifies himself. He kind of identifies himself in a different way to each church. This time he says, I am he who is holy. Now there is only one who is truly holy and that is God. So by Jesus claiming that he is who is holy, he's basically claiming I am God. That there is no one like me. There is no equal. I am truly holy. And so Jesus is holy in his character, in his words, in his actions, in his purpose, and everything about him is holy. There's nothing about him that is not holy, or otherwise he would not be God. Then he also says, I am the one who is true. Well, obviously Jesus doesn't lie, but it goes a little bit deeper. Jesus is the genuine. He is God. Uh, out of all the hundreds of gods that the uh, Roman people worshipped, he is the only one true God. And so that's the picture of the one who is true. Then he says, I'm the one who holds the key of David. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you go back to the prophets of old, many of them said, and there will be one who will sit on King David's throne. In other words, that's part of that prophecy that somebody of the lineage of David will come and become the Messiah. And so he has that right. He is of the lineage of David. We see that in the uh, genealogy found in Matthew and Luke. So we look and we see that he has the key of David. But it goes beyond just having a key. It says, I've got the key to open and to shut. He says, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now what does that mean? Well, basically Jesus gives us opportunities and he also takes away those opportunities. He opens up the doors of opportunities for us to minister. And he also shuts doors where we cannot minister. We kind of ask the question, why would Jesus ever shut a door of opportunity? Well, Paul asked that same question. If you remember, I think it was on his second missionary journey. Found in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. He says, they passed through... Uh, the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. 
Why would God, the Holy Spirit, forbid Paul and his others who are with him for speaking the word of God in Asia? We don't know that. So they had just passed through Phrygia and Galatia region and had been forbidden to speak. And then verse 7, after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. There again, he closed the door. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Then a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Wasn't that they were, had the wrong intentions. They had obviously the right intentions to go into these various places to share the gospel. But that's not where God wanted them. So God shut those doors and then he opened the door for them to go into Macedonia. And obviously we know that they had a very successful ministry there. So Jesus is the one who knows, who has uh, the, the plan set out for us. And he knows if we're following the right path. And if we, even with good intentions, are not doing what he wants us to do, he can close that door of opportunity. And then as we continue to seek him and his will for our lives, he will show us where the open door of opportunity is. So in essence, we need to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit within and we see that the church of Philadelphia seemed to understand this fact and was sensitive to the Lord's leadership and was able to see the opportunities that God had given them to share the gospel, even if it cost them persecution. Then picking up verse 8, Jesus says, I know your deeds. We've talked about this. He shared these same words with several other churches. He says, I know. I know what you've done. I know what you're doing. I know what you're capable of doing in the future. So I know he is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. So he knows that they are using an open door that he will not shut. See, no amount of persecution or opposition can keep them uh, from accomplishing the will of God. And here's the key, as long as they place their faith and trust in him, as long as they were open to the Holy Spirit, doing what was right, following his leadership, going through that open door, then Jesus says, I know your deeds. You're doing what I've called you to do. Then he has this little phrase, and a lot of people have really struggled with what does it mean. He says, you have a little power. What does that mean? Well, most of the commentaries that I studied, because uh, I wanted to see, get some other people's take on this, was they believed that the church in Philadelphia was probably a very small congregation. And also, it was probably a fairly poor congregation. If you remember another church that Jesus wrote to, he says, I know how poor you are because you, you've been told that if you do not participate in the pagan worship, if you don't participate in, in developing uh, idols to these false gods, then you will be excluded from all sales and purchasing of anything in this town. And so they were very poor. More than likely, the church in Philadelphia was going through some of those same things. If you remember, many temp temples to Roman gods were there. So they were being persecuted because they were not participating in uh, worshiping these, these idols, these pagan gods. 
Also, we're going to get to it in just a minute. There's a large non-Christian Jewish population there who are also persecuting them. We'll see that in just a minute. And so, in the scheme of things, you've got a small church, probably size-wise, a poor church because they are not participating in the things that the city says makes you a good citizen. And they're looking and saying, that's not going to stop us. We're going to do what God's called us to do. He's given us an open door of ministry, and we are going to minister. So it basically became obvious that God's not too interested in size or wealth. He's looking at the heart. What matters most is a willing spirit, trust, and faith in Him. Um, Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, kind of gives us a picture of this. And He said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Pretty much the same picture. You have little faith. You have little power. And he's saying even the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Whatever God wants you to do, He will make it possible for you to do. And so I believe that the church in Philadelphia believed that. And even small in number, poor uh, financially, probably didn't have a great uh, social reputation. They just simply put their faith in God. And that faith, as small as a mustard seed, was doing miraculous, wonderful things, sharing the gospel. Okay, now we get to the opposing Jews in verse 9. Behold, I uh, cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews, but are not, but lie. And I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Okay. In A.D. 70... Jerusalem was destroyed. The large majority of the Jews who lived there fled because it was basically totally overtaken by the Romans. And so they went into the surrounding areas and made a new life. And so this area in Asia Minor became a wonderful place for Jewish non-Christians to move. They, they, they clustered in groups large enough where they could have synagogues where they could kind of continue their own style of life, uh, going through the Mosaic laws and, and following the, uh, the ways of Judaism. And but Jesus is saying, you know, he calls him the synagogue of Satan. Why would he say that? Pretty, pretty harsh terms. He's basically saying, you know, they're calling themselves Jews, but they're not real Jews. They're lying. Why would Jesus say that? Well, if they were true Jews, they would know the prophecies of the coming Messiah. They would have compared those prophecies to Jesus. They would have seen that each and every one of those prophecies was fulfilled through Jesus, and they would have accepted Him as their Messiah. Because they rejected Him as their Messiah, He's basically saying, you know, they may be Jewish because of birth, and they may be Jewish because they continue to hold the faith of Judaism, but if they were really Jews, they would accept me as Messiah. So instead of calling them Jews, he's saying they're really lying. They're not truly Jews at heart. So he instead says, instead of being a synagogue of Judaism, they are a synagogue of Satan. Because Satan has blinded their eyes to the truth of Jesus as Savior and Lord. So 
He goes on and says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, how and when will that take place? Well, then time, the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what he is saying is that when I come in my final time, in the time of judgment, they will stand before me in judgment. And you, my saints, will be with me. And when they bow before me, they will also bow before you. And I will make them come and bow down at your feet and know that I have loved you. It will be evident that Jesus has loved these people standing with him as his saints. And so those who bow at the feet of Jesus will in essence bow before his saints. And so that's kind of that picture of you know, Jesus condemning those non-believing Jews. And then he talks about the promise resulting from their perseverance. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Now, that's kind of a weird way of talking about the word of God. But basically he's saying my word is a word of perseverance. My word is eternal. My word has power. And as long as you're faithful to my word, you can overcome anything. And because you have kept my word of perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. So first we see that they have been faithful to the word of God. They have dealt with the great persecution and they persevered. But then he says, as a result, I will keep you from the hour of testing. And then he even describes when that hour of testing will happen. That hour which is about to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. What's that picture? That's the picture of Jesus coming in his second coming to judge all mankind according to their deeds. But Jesus says, I will keep you from that hour of testing. Well, if that hour of testing is for the whole world, how will Jesus keep them from that hour of testing? They won't be here. That, if you remember when we went through the introduction for about two weeks, I shared with you that I am pre-tribulation rapture. I believe that uh, what we see in the scriptures where Jesus says, and I will come and the dead will rise in Christ first. And those who remain will join them and meet him in the air. Before Jesus comes back physically onto this earth, he will come and take his saints, both dead and alive, and they will be taken up, snatched away, and they will be with him. So that to me is that picture that before that time of testing comes, I will protect you from that hour of testing. I will keep you from it. So in my opinion, that is pointing to the rapture pre-tribulation. If it was mid-tribulation or post-tribulation, how could Jesus say, I will keep you from this hour of testing that is coming for the whole world? So to me, that is evidence that there is going to be a rapture, that the church will not be here to go through that time of testing that will be upon the whole world. You can disagree. That's fine. That's just my opinion. I believe that's kind of what it's pointing towards. Then we pick up verses 11 and 12. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Let's just kind of stop there. Hold fast what you have. 
Now, what do we have as Christians right now? We have a lot. We have enormous blessings. The greatest blessing is salvation from our sin. Another great blessing is the promise of eternal life with him. Now, those two right there are enough. But how many other blessings has God given us? But he basically says, hold fast to what you have. The thing that he's really saying is hold fast to your faith. Your faith is what is going to keep you going. Hold fast to it. Do not give up. He says, if you remain, if you hold fast, if you persevere, if you overcome, then no one will take your crown. Now, Jesus has already promised that those who are faithful to him in their ministry and in their life, they worship him as Savior and Lord. They surrender to his lordship in their life. They're obedient to his will for their lives. We will receive a crown of life. Now, this is not just a, a victor's crown. It's not just a laurel wreath. It is a spiritual crown that no one can take away from us. That's what he says. No one will take away your crown. So there's a passage of scripture that says that, that no one can take you out of my hands. No one can take you out of my father's hands. Your eternity is secure in me and the father. And so that's really just kind of a repeat of that just found here in Revelation that hold fast with what you have. Your faith is going to keep you on the right path. Your faith will keep you uh, to receive that gift of salvation, eternal life. And when that time comes, you will receive the crown of life and no one can take it away from you. In other words, when you're faithful and God knows it, when that day comes, we've talked about before, there's going to be two judgments. There's going to be one that judges the sinners by their sins and they will receive their eternal death. And then there's us who will be judged by our deeds. Yes, we will be judged by our deeds. We will not be judged by our sins because they have been wiped away. They've been covered with the blood of Christ. They are covered with the righteousness of Christ. But our obedience is what we will be judged by. How obedient will we be? And according to the scriptures, we will receive crown according to our faithfulness. But no one can take that crown away. And so we are eternally sealed in uh, our faith in him. And he never fails on his promises. Then he goes in verse 12, he who overcomes. Overcoming again is that keep on keeping on. Do not ever give up on what God's called you to do. Yes, more than likely there's going to be even more persecution to come against the church in Philadelphia. Yes, there's going to be threats against them. Yes, they may strain with just making ends meet. They're a small church, a poor church, and it will be very tempting to give over to the uh, to the words of the city. Just join us and you'll become good citizens and we'll trade things with you. We'll buy from you. We'll sell to you. We will just make you a part of the big family. Tempting, yes. But he says, he who overcomes, who overcomes this temptation, who deals with perse uh, uh, persecution, when you finish the race, you're considered an overcomer. That's basically what uh, Paul was saying and what I shared a few minutes ago. I have finished the race. I have successfully finished the course. And my God, who is faithful, has now prepared for me a crown of life. 
exactly what he's talking about here. And then Jesus adds to that, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, does God have a physical temple? No. What's he talking about? Well, if you were in Philadelphia at that time, just about anywhere you looked, you would be seeing some type of a temple to a Roman God. If you've ever seen uh, recreations or pictures of what, it, what these temples may have looked like, they had massive pillars staged about every, I don't know, five to ten feet, holding up these huge beams that would support the roof structure. They didn't have modern day technology where they could put you know, just a few uh, weight supporting columns in and then span it. They didn't have that archeological technology. They used huge, uh, huge pillars placed very closely together. And so everywhere you look, you saw these huge pillars. Well, God is saying, I have my own temple. And you will be a part of that. Really what he's saying is you're a part of my family. You have my name written on you. And so what we're looking at is that Jesus is showing that his faithful will be equated to the pillars, being a part of the holy temple. And each one of us is seen as a part of the body of Christ, the family of God. And when we receive our eternal rewards, it says we will not go out anymore. That's what the next part says. And he will not go out from it anymore. There again, our eternity is secure. Once we receive that eternal reward, why would, it, why would we ever want to leave it? No one can take us out. No one can drag us out. We will be there for all of eternity. And again, it's just pointing to our, our eternity is secure and forever. Now he says, and I will write on him the name of my father and the city of my father of my God. So here's the picture. We were bought by an incredibly high price. We were bought by the blood of Christ. He died on the cross for us. He shed his blood for us. His blood washes us clean. And basically we're bought with the precious blood of Christ. When we are purchased through the blood of Christ, we belong to God. We are His. And basically when it says, and I will write on Him the name of my God, that's basically ownership. We belong to God. He has placed His name, His deed, His ownership over us. And He also says, and I will give you the city, or write on you the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Now, here again, we don't fully Understand what's going to happen at that end time. It says the heavens and the earth will pass away, and then behold, a new Jerusalem will come and take its place. Now, how physical is this? It could be very physical. Is it physical, spiritual? We don't know. But what we do know is that will be our eternal dwelling place. That is where we will be with our Lord Jesus Christ as He rules. And then He says, and my new name. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that, I just wonder, is Jesus going to get a new name? Well, believe it or not, there's an Old Testament reference in one of the prophets, Isaiah, who wrote so much about the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2. 
The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. Hmm. Isaiah was still prophesying in chapter 62 of the, of the coming Messiah. He says, the nations will see your righteousness, and they will. All the kings, your glory, and they will. And you will be called by a new name. That's Isaiah 62, too, if you want that as a reference. So, yes, according to the scriptures, Jesus will receive a new name. Jesus was kind of like a, an earthly name, the name that he went by to be distinguished as to who he was as he walked this earth. What is his new name? We have no idea. Could we pronounce it right now if we knew it? I don't know. But he will have a new name designated by the Lord. And so then we come to that last verse, pretty much the same as what we've seen in all the other letters to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here again, uh, the message is not just for the church in Philadelphia. It will be for all the seven churches. This will be circular letters. They will all receive this and they will all hear about each other and probably pray for each other, encourage one another. But it also says, he who has an ear, and that includes us. That's the entire church of the Lord Jesus Christ, us included. So just kind of wrapping this up, Jesus states that by at least human standards, the church in Philadelphia had little power. Probably a small church, probably a poor church, probably didn't have a great social impact or influence. But because of their faith, they overcame their size, their lack of wealth, their lack of influence, and they saw that Jesus had opened a door of opportunity. And they believed with that faith of a mustard seed that if we trust Jesus and go through this door of opportunity, he will use us for his honor and glory, and we will minister in his name, and no one but Jesus can shut that door. So there's no one that has the power to stop them. They could be tempted, they could be persecuted, they could be ridiculed, all these things. They could go through hardships because they were being excommunicated from being citizens of that city. But by faith, God had given them great power and he would meet their needs one way or another. That same faith is for us as well. We need to have that faith like a mustard seed that can move mountains. Doesn't matter how small, how rich or poor we are, what influence we may have, if God has given us an open door to minister, we must minister. So we look and we see that the church in Philadelphia may resemble our church a little bit. It may be small in number, it may be dealing with a difficult time to be an influencer in this community. But if God opens the door of opportunity, church-wide or individually, we must step through it and do what he's called us to do. Now, I'm talking to the choir. You're the ones who do a lot of ministry. You're the ones who make visits, phone calls, write cards and letters. You're the ones who see a need and immediately try to meet that need. So we just need to keep on keeping on, continue to do what God's called us to do. And if he shows us more to do, take that step through that open door and do it and God will bless. All right, let's close with prayer then.
Well, we're so thankful for your word. And Lord, it does all blend together. Lord, the Old Testament and the New Testament are so equally important to us. Help us to never take the Old Testament for granted or do away with it just because it uh, is basically under the law instead of grace. Because there may be some different standards that you used for your people. Lord, help us be thankful that because of the prophecies of the Old Testament, it told us what to look for in the Messiah. And then when he came, we know that he is your son. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have to worship him as Savior and Lord. Help us to surrender anew each and every day. Help us to be guided by your Holy Spirit to see the doors of opportunity that you place in our hearts and lives each and every day. And Lord, they may be major opportunities that are lifelong, or they may be something short-lived, some little ministry that you just want us to do for an individual. Whatever they are, Lord, help us be found faithful. Help us to take that faith, even the size of a mustard seed, and put it into action. And with that tiny faith, Lord, we can do miracles through your Spirit. Lord, guide us in all we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.